BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to another episode of Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Joining me in studio today is Adam Bristol. I'm back. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> so one of the reasons I wanted you to do this intro with me is uh, because you're really fun to talk to. Uh, the second reason is because you actually introduced me to the writings of this week's guest, Joe Poznanski. I'm intensely jealous that you got to interview <laughs> Joe because I have been a major fan of his for at least 10 years. Like when I was thinking, when did I first start reading Joe Poznanski? I honestly don't remember. I mean, he's a very prominent sports writer. Uh, Most people would probably have known him from his work with Sports Illustrated, but he's had a very active blog going back at least, I would say, seven to 10 years. And he's an incredible writer. He's very funny. He has this uh, unpretentious wonderment about the subjects he studies, and lots of it's sports baseball, football, tennis, golf, but he's also delved into a lot of other non-sports and a lot of biographies. And he's just, he's a great read. He's a really, really wonderful writer. One of the reasons I wanted to have him on this show uh, is because what he's worked on most recently really touches at the relationship that we humans have with the truth. And whether we really want to know the truth or whether there's something magical about being hoodwinked. (laughs) I mean, that's exactly true. You can imagine coming out of his coverage of the sports world, primarily the professional sports world, where in essence, it is entertainment. And there's probably a lot under the hood that goes on in the service of that entertainment that isn't always the narrative that we come to believe as fans. And he's probably seen that, and yet it still engages us. It's still fantastic to be able to just enjoy the drama of sports without seeing kind of the seedy underbelly of the economics, the finances, the in, in you know in the case of football, the detrimental effects of playing over long periods. But you know when he came out with the book Houdini, a lot of people might think, well, why would Joe Pizzanti do that? But if you know the thread of his writing and also the common themes that he likes to explore, you know, the the life and afterlife of Harry Houdini, it kind of makes perfect sense. And I know that our listeners love talking and thinking about magic because magic has that special place where, you know, ultimately there is a truthfulness to it and integrity and authenticity to what's happening. And really what magic tells us is how easily our attention is diverted uh, in ways that we can then perceive 
connections between things that are impossible uh, as being somehow having happened. A lot of our listeners, I think uh, a lot of people who enjoy science uh, find an outlet in magic, either creating magic tricks or going to magic shows and kind of really getting deep down into the fundamental mysteries of magic uh, while acknowledging that there is always a scientific explanation. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the fact that magic works, that we have magicians, speaks to the liabilities of our own psychology. Joe Posnanski, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's great to be here. How are you? I'm really well. You know, so you open up your book in a way that I think probably whoever was behind marketing at your publishers cringed a little bit because you tell us all the other books that were written about Houdini. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've written a book proposal here and there, and that's like what you don't do. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's one of those things where when I first presented the idea uh, to my publishers, uh, you know, I, I kind of – nothing nothing that I said like would – it makes for a good proposal at all. And I'm like, oh, you know, I really want to do this book on Houdini. Oh, what do you know about him? Not a lot. And well, who do you know in magic? No, I don't know anybody in, in magic. Uh, well, you know, is this a fresh topic? Yeah, there have been like hundreds of books written about Houdini. So – Every step along the way, I basically was kicking myself uh, in the head trying to do this thing. But, you know, once I started writing the book, uh, to me, such a big part of the story, the, the book, is, as you know, is about why he still matters, why we still care about him, why we still even know who he is. And a huge part of that story is, is uh, you know, the, the line of people who have who have tried to keep his name alive for the last hundred years, and and so many of those are in books, and music, and art, and in in politics, and sports. I mean, it's it's you know it's across the board, and and uh, so yeah, I figured right away. I'm not hiding from this. This is this is not the first Houdini book that's out there, but I think it's hopefully different from every other Houdini book in that it it sort of embraces. This idea that uh, that that this book isn't just really about Houdini; it's about wonder and this notion of it lasting, and this notion of 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 why somebody who uh, you know would escape from handcuffs on stages across the country is still known, you know, even now. Yeah, and you know, it really fits well with some of the other topics that you've been covering recently, which are about people's passions. And you know, if 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 I got anything from this book, and I got a lot out of it, one of the things clear is that Houdini was driven with a kind of passion that you don't often see, and that seems to have led to his ability to have become a legend. Yeah, it, it, it's really you know, it's striking. I, you come in to a book like this and you know that that here is somebody who is obviously ambitious somebody who who wanted to be famous who wanted to make money who wanted to be you know known and all those sorts of things but then you see it up close and you're right it's it's all passion and it's this passion for you know things that we admire and things that we don't admire you know it's this passion for entertaining this passion for for making people feel better it's passion for for uh, you know giving people a little bit of a sense of of what can be done and 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 what's possible and all those things but it's also a passion for you know immortality a passion to 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 be remembered forever a passion to make the most money the you know all of it's so many things rolled up into one and and the thing that's so 
so, you know, really gripping, I think, about Houdini is that it never stopped for him. You know, I mean, we, we all feel like uh, a passion for what we do or a passion for, for you know, things that we that we believe in deeply. Uh, but but this guy, there was, you know, there was no stopping him at, at any point. And, and there was no point where he was like, OK, you know, enough, I'm going to back off now. I mean, he 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 went to the to the very end and and, uh, you know, that's a that's quite a figure. You know, it's that's quite a person to write about. One of the other things that makes your book uh, really stand out and, and be exceptional is that it really is written in a, some ways as a kind of biography of Joe Posnanski as you discover the characters and the sort of afterlife of Houdini. You know, this is a book you you wrote where you, know, you couldn't actually interview Houdini, although maybe you interviewed his ghost uh, a number of times. Sure, of course I did. You know, what was it like for you to kind of go from not knowing anybody into the in the magic world to be developing these really deep relationships with these people who have such an insular world that they inhabit. Yeah, I mean you, it's a it's a absolutely, you know, great observation by you because it's exactly sort of what I was going through. You know, I the first version of this book that I wrote was much less personal. Uh I I really wanted to be sort of in the background and and sort of tell this story through all of these amazing people that I'd met and and through Houdini himself uh, which I think I still do but but it didn't work unless I could get in there and and sort of describe this transformation for me because this was unlike anything that I'd ever done as as a writer in that I mean I I come in with nothing and with nobody and I don't even have anybody to introduce me to other people, you know, I don't, I don't know anybody in this world. So, uh, so I, I come in as a stranger, and I come in as somebody who, who fully understands that magicians are uh, by nature and and by profession secretive. Uh, they're people that that hide uh, a lot of things, and and I've got to come in and say, hey, open up to me, and 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 I was very worried about it, and. It, it turns out I didn't need to be. It turns out that people were incredibly open to me, and and I did develop these very deep bonds with people that I believe I'll I'll keep for the rest of my life, uh, which is so great for me. And 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 so yeah, at, at at some point I realized that even though it wasn't exactly what I intended at the beginning, this this idea of being able to sort of you know be a be a guide into this world, you know, to walk into this world uh, which, where so many, so few of us get to go, and be able to tell you about these these people who whose entire lives are built around inspiring wonder in others. That's that's the only thing that they do, and of course that's that's what you do. That's what what you know musicians do. That's what artists do. But they do it in a in a very different way, and and so. It was thrilling for me to to be able to go in that world, and and I realized that part of this book had to be that journey. Part of this book had to be come along with me as I as we walk through David Copperfield's museum, or come along with me as we as we watch, uh, you know, a magician, you know, break down a single trick right in front of your very eyes, and 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 that uh, that to me was was you know such a such a great part of of writing this book. 
There's a really interesting juxtaposition in the magic world, as you mentioned, this idea of wonder and how a lot of people who are performing artists or any other kind of creatives, they do want to instill wonder. Even scientists really are driven by wonder. Um, But there's a kind of authenticity that the audience looks for, right, in their artists. In fact, the worst you know, thing that you can be said about you is that you're inauthentic. <laughs> um, and here we have magicians who, by their very nature, are doing something that is either impossible or amazing. And I, wa- I like that you distinguish those two things, and I, I want to get there too. But I-, I wanted to start with this kind of question for you where, you know, Houdini inspired just as much hate as he did love, even amongst magicians, because of his relationship with telling the truth. So, you know, maybe we should start with Houdini and then we can talk about, you know, why people hate him um, and this kind of, you know, nature of, of wonder and truth telling. So, so yeah, let her, let her tell our audience about, you know, how Houdini thought about what, how the truth. Yeah. Houdini didn't care for the truth at all. He had no interest in the truth. And, and, and your, your point is right. And there's such a, there's such a, long and 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 fascinating conversation to be had with with uh, a scientist like yourself about this idea because you know there's there's a great Jerry Seinfeld bit about magic where he he really really doesn't like magicians because to him all they're doing is like and eh, now you see it now you don't you're an idiot you know like basically you're they're just fooling you that's all they're doing is fooling you and then they expect you to be amazed or to or to appreciate them. And of course, you know, that's a that's a very funny and, and distorted view of what what great magicians do, but but that is a fight all the time because they are by their very nature showing you something that is impossible and they're doing it because it's not impossible and and they have a secret and they have something that they're not telling you or they have a they have a way of making you look the wrong way at the right moment or whatever the case may be and 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 yet you know they're they're there to inspire this thing so there's a there's a wonderful like line where it's it's you know, uh, uh, to me, it's the it's the difference between good magic and and bad magic, or 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 you know, uninteresting magic. Probably the same way again it, that there's a line between you know music that moves you and music that that doesn't. And, and I think Houdini, of course, was the ultimate example of this because Houdini's entire life was a lie in the sense of he created this character, this you know, and I call him like this Jay Gatsby character. In that, you know, nothing about what he said about himself was true. Uh, There's, you know, I I go through this at at some length in the book, but there is a single sort of, he he never wrote an autobiography, but he wrote an autobiographical piece for a friend of his in a a periodical. And it is still viewed today. It's it's called Harry Houdini by Harry Houdini. And it is viewed today as, as the, you know, the quintessential uh, Houdini story. It's Houdini finally breaking down and telling you the truths about himself. And it starts off with him saying, you know, my name is Harry Houdini. I was born in, in Appleton, Wisconsin in, in 1874 and, or 1873. And, uh, and, you know, here in Appleton, Wisconsin, in the United States of America, and none of it was true. Not a single word of it was true. He wasn't born in Appleton. He wasn't born in the United States. He wasn't born on the date that he said he was born. The entire thing was invented. And, and I think Houdini would not have considered that a lie. It was building this character that he wanted to be immortal. He was building this larger-than-life figure. And in some ways, 
that is magic, right? That the, the idea is that, that I'm not lying to you. I'm showing you art. I'm showing you something to inspire you and something that, that will, that will stay with you forever and, and you'll never forget it. And what difference does it make? What the truth is, you know, in this world, I'm taking you, it's, you know, it's, it's the novelist, right? It's like the novelist being able to tell you, I can tell you a greater truth through fiction than I can through nonfiction. That is magic as well. And so that's fun. I mean, that's such a, that's such an interesting concept and, and, and one that I really loved exploring in this book, because I think it's at the center of this book. I think the center of this book is Houdini created this character and this notion of escape that is it's unforgettable. And, and that's why we haven't forgotten him. I mean, it is, we want to escape every bit as much, if not more right now in today's crazy world than, than they did in 1906. And, and, uh, and Houdini still represents that idea of escape. You know, and it even goes back to legends. Like the one that stuck with me is like the ap- apple cake, apple cooking, you know, in his mother's <laughs> cabinet. That she, you know, they, like people, you know, people will tell the stories of like, even when he was a kid, he was, you know, surprising people by getting through locked little uh, cabinets and nobody knowing how he did it. Um, but of course, probably totally not true. Um, so I guess that brings me to the question, uh, you know, a lot of people that you interviewed said that he's actually was not a very good magician. Yes. <laughs> so, so what the hell? <laughs> how, how did he do it? It's a, it's a fascinating thing. And it was great because it really divided the people I talked to. And I, and, and it was funny because people would say to me, some of the, some of the, you know, most uh, thoughtful, either magicians or magical historians or, or people who just uh, love this art form would say to me at the start, they'd say, look, you don't want to talk to me. I don't like Houdini. And I'd say, well, that's exactly why I want to talk to you. I mean, I, I want, I want to know who this guy was. And, and so, you know, when you look at what Houdini was great at, he was, he was an incredible inventor of of mythology he was he was an unbelievable promoter you know i mean he nobody promoted quite like houdini did he was a fantastic athlete i mean he really was a great athlete who could hold his breath for for long periods of time and and could could do all sorts of amazing athletic feats uh that he that he would often use in his escapes uh so he did he had all these talents but Everybody will tell you as a card magician, he was a hack. And, and, as, a, and as someone, you know, there, there's a whole book written by a, a guy named Jim Steinmeier, who's a very big part of my, uh, a very big part of my book. And, and, you know, to me, as, as brilliant a guy as you'll see, he's, you know, he's, he's a magic inventor as well as a writer. He invented the, uh, the, the uh, Statue of Liberty escape, uh, disappearance by David Copperfield. He's the one that designed the magic carpet for uh, Aladdin on Broadway. So he's this brilliant guy. And what he says, you know, about Houdini is that Houdini was given one of the truly greatest tricks in the history of magic, which was to disappear the elephant, which he did, you know, in, in long before any such thing could be thought possible. He, he put an elephant in a box, opened the box, the elephant was gone and, and he didn't invent it. And he had really didn't have anything to do with how it was done. And he really didn't even do anything in the trick. He just, he, but he presented it as Harry Houdini and it bombed. It absolutely bombed on stage. Nobody got it. Nobody understood what it was. Nobody really could see inside the box. The whole thing was was just kind of a mess and it has since become 
one of the most influential of magic tricks because of because of the method. People have used that method to do amazing things, including in stuff in movies ever since. But Houdini bombed. And and, you know, his point being this guy couldn't pull it off as a magician. But as an escape artist, as as a guy who like, hey, no, nothing could hold Houdini prisoner, uh, as a guy who would accept challenges, a guy who would jump into rivers with with handcuffs on, uh, he was untouchable and unmatchable. And and so he wasn't a great magician, but he was he, he invented a whole other form of 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 magic that uh, that he's still he's still the greatest, uh, you know, at, at what he did. Uh, you know, it's kind of amazing. I would think the only other potential, I mean, maybe David Copperfield, but David Blaine comes to mind as, you know, one of the modern day equivalents of someone like Harry Houdini. And and most of his magic, quote unquote, too, is related to these feats of physical endurance, you know? So I guess what, what I'm, the, the question kind of deeply hidden down there is that when we think about magic is it more important that there be something that we feel is just you know impossible or amazing or or that you know our eyes are lying to us or that the person has done something physically that we would not be able to do i think it comes down to the performance it comes down to to what it makes us feel at the end of the day you know you you mentioned a couple of times and and the original name of this book was the amazing and the impossible. That was the original name of the book because I was speaking with this wonderful magical writer and 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 performer named Jamie Ian Swiss and we were discussing Houdini and I was telling him about this idea of wonder that that really drove me to write this book and he said I'd be very careful talking about Houdini and wonder because I don't think that's, you know, you have to be very careful about that. I don't think Houdini uh, you know, wonder is is doing the impossible and Houdini didn't do that. And I said, well, but Houdini escaped from all of these, these handcuffs and jail cells and boxes and straitjackets and, and, and all of these in, incredible feats of, of escape. And Jamie said, that's amazing, but it's not impossible. And, and to me, I love that. I love that line. What is that line between the amazing and the impossible? I would argue that what David Blaine does is amazing. I would argue that David Blaine, much of this, you know, being locked in a sheet of ice or 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 actually catching a bullet in his teeth, which he does and or has done, and 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 some of the other crazy, you know, crazy stunts that he's pulled off, they're amazing. But they're not impossible. They're they're just they're just like why would anybody do it? Is is sort of and Houdini had some of that. Like, why would anybody do it? So, so I think, you know, there are people, you know, we're sports fans, you and I are, are big sports fans, and we love seeing amazing stuff. And sometimes we call it impossible, but it's not. It's, it's, it's amazing that, that uh, you know, Aaron Judge can hit a ball 500 feet, but it's not impossible. I mean, we know that. And so we love that. So, so maybe for us, that magic is, is more compelling, but for others, Maybe it's different and, and, and or maybe it's different for even for us where what we want to see is David Copperfield make a, a car appear right above our heads. And, and you go, how in the world that that's impossible. That's not amazing. That's impossible. And, you know, our minds are blown and, and you know, it can it can either spark us to think, OK, I'm going to figure it out or it could spark us to think, wow, you know, maybe the, the world's uh 
a, a, a more, you know, a more mysterious place than I ever thought. And, and I think that both of those are perfectly reasonable ways to think about art. And so, so I, I do think it's a, it's a matter of personal preference, but, but Houdini definitely leaned more in that David Blaine direction. I think you're right. He tried to be a magician and he tried to do magical things. He wasn't very good at it, but he was incredibly good at doing these, these, these feats of strength. Mel Science is a chemistry subscription service that sends you monthly experiments to do with your child. It's a great way to engage kids in science early, educate them in a joyful manner, and get them to conduct real scientific experiments with their own hands. And you know what? If you don't have kids, Mel Science makes an amazing gift for kids that are important to you. In the first box, you get a free starter kit with all the necessary equipment, including a free virtual reality headset to use for their free VR lessons, which is one of the things that I think is really awesome about this particular subscription service. There are over 30 chemistry topics and experiments. They range from things like assembling a functioning battery to growing crystals and even launching a mini rocket. The thing that I like most about Mel Science, though, is that it really brings chemistry in a very fun and easy to do way into the home. So often we hear people say that they are scared of chemicals. You know, chemicals are in a particular food and that's really bad. Um, you know, of course, it turns out we are made up of chemicals <laughs> and understanding things like how much of a chemical you need to ingest in order for it to be toxic or what it means to have a toxic chemical at all is something that kids can learn from a really young age and that could really serve them well for the rest of their lives. You know, we play board games at home with our kids. Why not do chemistry? It's just as fun when it comes to Mel Science's subscription service. Get 25% off plus a free starter kit, a free virtual reality headset, and free shipping when you text MINDS to 64000. Text MINDS to 64000 to get this special offer from Mel Science. You support our show when you support our sponsors. So text M-I-N-D-S to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. You know, when you talk about wonder, the thing that kind of comes to mind to me is the fact that there is a sense of pleasure, reward that we get from being in a state of wonder. You know, when somebody, when something blows our mind, it actually feels good, <laughs> which is interesting from an evolutionary perspective. You know, it sort of leads us towards being curious animals, uh, because if it was, if it didn't feel good to wonder and, and try to look for new knowledge, then I don't think we would do it as much. But, you know, what what I guess what what then is the the next question is and and there is this very you have to be very careful when you're writing about magic I'm I'm assuming although maybe for you it's not such an issue that people get very upset if you tell them how these magic tricks work and you know to our listeners uh, you know you do reveal a number of tricks uh, not all of them uh, certainly by any means not even the majority of them uh, but you know you do tell us so how how some of these tricks work so how do you like you know, how how is that sort of, uh, how did you make those decisions of what to reveal? And, and how does that relate to, did it diminish the wonder for you when you know, like how this trick works? Like, what, what's the relationship there? It's, it's, it's a great, I'm so glad you asked me that, because there are two things in the book that I would, would say I quote, unquote, reveal. And in both cases, I reveal it because I believe by revealing it, the, the wonder goes up, not down. And, and, and that was, that was to me the key. I, my, my idea, my goal was never to reveal what, what Houdini, how Houdini did anything for a couple of reasons. One being that, that many others have. I mean, if, if you want to know how Houdini escaped from whatever, 
you know, it's in books. I mean, it's out there. People have, have said it. But there are two that I reveal. One, and I don't even reveal one of them. One, I give my theory on how it was done. And that and that uh, illusion uh, or escape, I guess, not an illusion at all, but an escape, uh, was from the mirror cuffs in, in London where he escaped from these these cuffs that were made supposedly uh, that took five years to make that were utterly uh, inescapable. And, and he went in front of an audience and took a full hour and escaped from them. And the reason I, I wrote a lot about that one is that we still don't really know how he did it. It's a hundred plus years later and many, many, many people have given their theories and I share those theories on there, but all of the theories have problems and none of the theories are definitively right and will never be definitively right. We'll never know for sure how he did it. And I love that so much. I love that notion so much that we're never going to know. So in that setting, I had to put my own theory of how, how it was done because it's it's like this wonderful puzzle of, of magic. And then the other one I won't I won't talk about, but it's specific to the Chinese water torture cell. And I only use it, I don't I don't reveal it myself. I, I let someone in there reveal a, a particular there's it's not it's not a it's not a full method, but a particular secret about that. And the reason I do that is because it says so much about Houdini. So those were the two that I felt like if I reveal a little something here, it is it is only, and by the way, uh, in that chapter, you might remember that I reveal a little something about the Chinese water torture cell. I warn the, the reader. I tell the reader, like, if you don't want to know, skip this next page because, um, you know, not knowing is, is so often in magic so much better than knowing. But I think the secret is well worth knowing. So so that one I thought was worth doing it. But it was very, very important to me to not reveal. It was very important to me to keep the mystery for, for a lot of reasons, including the fact that that was at the heart of what my book was. My The heart of my book is that maybe, you know, maybe we lack wonder in today's world. Maybe we have become too jaded. We have become too divided. We have become too, uh, too curious, uh, not curious, but too cynical about curiosity. And and I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about, I think the reason we care so much about Houdini now is we long for that. I think we long to be inspired and we long to be, uh, you know, feeling, you know, somebody to to make us feel wonder. Uh, you know, I think that's why we we go to see, you know, Avengers movies. I think that's why we, we do so many of the things we do, but there are fewer and fewer places it feels like where we can go and feel wonder. Uh, you know, somebody does a great magic trick on television now. The next day, YouTube is filled with 25 people telling you how he did it. And, you know, which is, I'm not saying that's wrong in, in any way, but that's the time we're in. And I do think that there is this longing for wonder. And, and so, so revealing was, was never really a part of my, uh, a part of my plan. Well, but so so we're in this era too, where the distinction between truth and spectacle has permeated everything. I mean, like you know, I guess I should just ask you pointedly: Do you think this is why Donald Trump was elected? I mean, he he is essentially, in some ways, a Houdini. He is. He is very much a Houdini. I've already been asked this uh, specifically about him uh, by by numerous people, and yeah, I mean, he's you know, Houdini certainly didn't have the same ambitions. Uh, that Donald Trump has, but well, I mean, maybe uh, he didn't know he could have. 
<laughs> who, who, and why would he have, by the way? He, right. he could he could have been president. He wasn't born here. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, there is something and not, you know, I mean, certainly we can stay specifically with Trump, but but really across the political spectrum, across the 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 sports spectrum, across the entertainment spectrum, there is this idea of being able to just, you know, you know, promote your way into fame and fortune. I mean, that, that is what Houdini in so many ways did. I mean, he had, he had an act. It turned out to be a very, you know, good act in the sense of that it really captured the time and the moment and what people longed for. But, you know, there were thousands of other vaudeville performers and, and a lot of them had, you know, great acts, including handcuff acts and things like that. But nobody could match him when it came to telling a story, promoting himself. You know, I mean, it, it, as I write about in the book, Houdini, before he would perform in the in the 1910s, before before he would perform, he would show up in the center of town right next to the newspaper office, get lifted, you know, three stories off the ground and escape from a straitjacket while dangling upside down. Uh, people have seen the photos. Those were free. That, that was pure promotion. It was nothing other than create a spectacle have people come to the show the next day. It was like, you know, I, I've written that, you know, at the time newspapers were Instagram. So that was, he would always do it right there where newspapers could capture everything that he was doing. And, and he went viral time and time and time again in, in the 1915 sort of way that you could go viral. Now, of course, there's so many more tools to do it. And you can just say something outrageous. You can just tweet something outrageous. You can, you can, you know, do a, uh, a quick video uh, that that you know people go crazy for. So yeah, I I think Houdini was the forebearer of a lot of stuff, and Trump is easily the most uh, the most powerful example of this because you know his, his connection to the truth is is shaky. He created this own you know he invented this character that he is, and it's a character that you know so many X percent of of America is deeply in love with. And, you know, it is, he's president of the United States doing basically what Houdini did. So no question that there's, uh, I think, a direct line uh, from Houdini and then, you know, go back to P.T. Barnum and those guys. But I, I don't think anybody ever did it as well as Houdini. And then now people have just picked it up from there. So I want to take a moment to remind our listeners that Joe Poznanski's book, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini, is now available at publishers everywhere. So, Joe, you know, you've written about a lot of really great athletes and you chose to write about uh, Babe Ruth and now Harry Houdini. These are legends that, you know, become household names, even if you don't know anything about magic or about baseball. And yet there are a lot of really great baseball players out there. Um, you know, my husband's got tickets to see Derek Jeter <laughs> enter the Hall of Fame this summer. We've got Mariana Rivera, Mike Trout. OK, we don't have to be all Yankees. But, you know, the question I have now is, is, is it possible to create legends in the current climate, given that there is so much noise out there, given, you know, all the other factors? And is, is Houdini really, in some ways, the last magician to have been able to create this legend? Because as you mentioned in your book, there's so many better musicians, uh, magicians, <laughs> sorry, who like nobody knows. <laughs> In his time and ever since then, it's it's a hundred percent right. This is this is very much at the heart of of what I was going for because when I first started thinking about what my next book was going to be, I I was thinking about could there be a Babe Ruth in today's world? Could that even happen? You know, and and 
I, I would have to say Derek Jeter came as close as as you can come in in many ways. He wasn't he wasn't Babe Ruth. He didn't do the things that Babe Ruth did. But <laughs> he, he was pretty good. <laughs> he was he was pretty good. He didn't he didn't he didn't hit more home runs than entire teams. You know, okay. at the beginning. All right. But but he was he was good. He was obviously very very good, and he was very good in big moments and had many many memorable things. But okay, so then he you know and he he retired. With this, with this great legend, but even then, people are arguing about his defensive stats, uh, how good a defender was. Then he goes to Miami, and and now you know is 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 not particularly being celebrated for the way he's he's running the the Marlins, and and he you know he's become diminished. I mean, regardless, you know, because he's human, and and we we see the full human. I mean, we didn't see. Babe Ruth getting chased by women with knives on the train. You know, I mean, we didn't we didn't see the 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 crazy life that he that he led, uh, and now we do, and now we see all of this. I was thinking about this just the other day when LeBron James, who is you know as legendary as I think you can be in so many ways, he comes out and 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 takes a shot at Daryl Morey for, for Daryl Morey's tweet about China and, and Hong Kong, uh, you know, the, the protesters. And basically suddenly everybody's tearing into LeBron James for, for making what, you know, I would tend to also agree was somewhat of a cowardly statement and so on and so forth. That just didn't exist in those days. The, the, the idea that Babe Ruth was going to say anything, you know, about about foreign policy was just lunacy. And even if he did, everybody would have just laughed, and nobody would have taken it seriously, and 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 they would have loved him because he was the Bambino and he could hit home runs. And that went on, and that that went on in the fifties. Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle and 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 those guys, and and you know, on into the sixties and even the seventies and eighties. It's tougher now. It is tougher now, and and I don't know that there's an answer for that. I, you know, I think people want to know more, more, more. There's a direct line now from the athlete or the performer d- directly to the fans. That's good and bad. But creating wonder. There's another thing about wonder that I actually be curious what you think about it as a as a neuroscientist. The we see the same things. We see the same plays over and over and over again. And I wonder if that, you know, from a sports perspective, if that also, uh, you know, infects our our sense of wonder and you know we if we still don't know if if Babe Ruth really called his shot in the World Series. Like that's one of the most famous legends in all of in all of uh baseball, you know that he in the World Series against the Cubs, he pointed and you know to the fence and then hit a home run to that place and it's the called shot. But we don't know if he did it. There's 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 vague kind of very grainy home movies that that have come out that don't really tell us one way or another. He was never really asked about it after the game. It wasn't until later that the legend built up. These days it would be 2 weeks of of like coverage. If somebody called a shot, you know, they'd break it down, people would be arguing, "Oh, you know what? He didn't really call it or this." And you know, it would be it would be on ESPN's, you know, uh, shows day after day after day after day until there's nothing left to, you know, there's, there's nothing left on that bone. There's, there's just, it's just, okay, great. You know, so throughout one example, the David Tyree catch in the world, in the Super Bowl where he caught the ball against his helmet and it's, you know, probably the most famous catch in Super Bowl history. And I've seen it 10,000 times. So it doesn't, it doesn't impress me anymore. And I do wonder from a brain perspective, 
seeing the same thing over and over again, that has to uh, make you feel a little bit more jaded about things, doesn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, you just get habituated. You just don't process it in the same way unless you can find another layer of meaning. So like, you know, when you repeat a sentence over and over and over again and it becomes music, your brain is like, whoa, this is something totally new that I hadn't seen before. But once you can no longer extract anything new and, and you know, then the repetition just your brain is not interested. And I, I think there, that is exactly why I think it's going to be really hard to create legends moving forward because, you know, we there is no wonder that that is left. You know, if, if, if Harry Houdini had written that he was born in Applegate, Wisconsin, in 10 seconds, somebody would check Wikipedia and call him out on it. Right. Like so. And then they'd edit it on Wikipedia. You know what I mean? So I, I feel like that's just not possible anymore. And I do think that therefore we don't have that same sense of joy of not knowing because once we know, it's not as interesting. I think that's a, that's 100% right. Now, our hunger to feel that wonder, to feel that awe, to feel that sense of mystery, that doesn't go away. I don't believe it does. So so I think there there have to be ways to do it. You know, it's just harder now. And 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 one of the things I really did want to get out of this book were some of the lessons of of what Houdini did and why, you know, not only why he he survives, but but what he has left to teach us about about wonder. And and you know, I think there are some things and and you know part of it is is you know, you, you, you know there's a there's a really wonderful, wonderful line uh about magic from uh the magician Teller of Penn and Teller, because Teller will talk when he's not on stage. And Teller said sometimes magic is just spending more time on something than anyone else would find reasonable. And I think that's what Houdini did. Like Houdini took these notions and these ideas to such an extreme. You know, he he would tell people in private letters about being, you know, the day he was born in Appleton, Wisconsin. And it was, you know, there were it's why like like to people that would never that wouldn't care that would you know like just friends of friends and but he had to carry this act out to the to the very very end and uh and i think that's part of it i think part of it is really being willing to push the boundaries and take it to a level that other people would not find reasonable i i think that that makes sense yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true, too. And, and you know, in some ways, we kind of think that sometimes we, if we know exactly how something is done, that we can know every bit of it. But the truth is, is when you work on something long enough and hard enough, eventually it becomes automatic. And even you yourself no longer know how you do it. You know, like if you ask baseball players how they hit that ball, they're wrong half the time. You know, they don't actually know. Well, that's true. Um, that's you true. know, and they don't make great coaches because they don't know. And I think that there, so there is that layer, you know, that that continues. Um, so there is hope. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. There's a very famous uh, story about the great pitcher Bob Gibson when he was a pitching coach for Atlanta. Uh, that he, uh, you know, there was a there was a, a pitcher named Rick Mailer, and Rick Mailer was on the mound, and Bob Gibson came out. He was in trouble, and Bob Gibson came out and he screamed at him, just like you just throw the fastball up high and then throw the slider down away and that's it. And he was like screamed at him and he ran away, you know, went back to the dugout and Rick Mailer said, I don't have a fastball or a slider. You know, he's like, he was like Bob Gibson could do it. If you, if you throw like Bob Gibson, that's the secret. If you throw like Rick Mailer, it is not the secret, but, but I do think that's right. And, and by the way, there's, there's something very interesting about magicians that it's not in the book, but it's something that I've noticed through the, through the years when magicians have shown me, 
like how they do a trick, like a, a car trick or something like that. When they've shown it to me and they slow it down, they struggle with it. They're like, okay, wait a minute, what do I do here? And then they have to do it fast again so they can remember how they do things. So I think you're exactly right. I I, I do think that at some point the secret is is gone because they've they've done it so many times before that it's just it's just as natural as, you know, as Steph Curry making a three-point shot. You don't you don't think about these things anymore. And in fact, when you do, it screws you up, right? That's why they miss foul shots all the time. <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, Joe Fisnansky, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Your book is such a delight to read. Oh, thank you. This was so much fun for me. So one of the things that I didn't ask Joe about is something that you and I laugh about a lot, Adam, which is the sense that he has that the Yankees, uh, which is your favorite team, have some kind of voodoo magic associated mm. with the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joe Joe writes about that a lot. It didn't come up in the book. This is true. Um, you're, 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 there's two maybe overlapping concentric circles here. What Joe likes to say is that the New York Yankees, they can acquire players that maybe are unheralded, and then you just put the pinstripes on them, and they start to play amazingly well. What is this Yankee black magic that they have? You know, very different than you know the Harry Houdini or uh, um, you know the the you know the, the magic that he describes. But what Joe doesn't often see is sometimes, just like in the magic world, the spells go bad or don't work. So what Joe often doesn't describe is the number of players who, when they come to New York, in fact don't play they don't play up to their 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 potential because of the scrutiny of being in a big market um the pressure of playing in New York i can give you a number of players who've then gone away from new york city and then played much better so whether that's a different form of black magic i don't know but <laughs> well he does love to have a yankee minute in his own podcasts where he hates on the yankees like i'm sure many people do um, but even if you're completely agnostic about sports, uh, I, I I hope that you're you enjoy the interview and that you know we kind of um, were able to sort of get into this discussion of Harry Houdini, the man, but also our approach to legends and how truthful, uh, or I, I should say, what role the truth has in terms of us building up our own legends. So. That's it for another episode. Uh, Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And we want to thank especially David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Thanks for joining me, Adam Bristol. Thanks for having me anytime. See you next week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.